This is Sam. This is Paul. And this is Amy. And this is Southpaw. Today, Paul and I have mental health expert, talk therapist, world-renowned speaker, and internationally best-selling author, Amy Morin, on the show today. Hi, Amy. Hello. Thanks for having me. So I wanted to bring you on because your journey is very interesting and also your ideas. And even on your website, it says that it's been an incredible journey for you. So we wanted to talk to you about that journey from start to now. Yes. And I know you've been along the journey with me for quite a long time. (laughs) Yeah. How did you end up in mental health? Well, I started out thinking I was going to be a doctor and I went to college. And on my first day of college, we were supposed to dissect cats. And everybody else in the room was really excited to get into dissecting a cat. And suddenly it occurred to me, you know, I really didn't want to do that. I wasn't interested in uh, dissecting anything animals or humans or anything like that. And I realized, all right, maybe I don't want to be a doctor. Maybe I just like the idea of being a doctor. I still wanted to help people, but I didn't, I didn't want to, I didn't want to go to med school after all. So the second day of college, I switched my major and I thought, all right, I'll go into social work and see what that's all about. But I thought, you know, I can always change my major later, but I fell in love with it and decided, no, I actually think I kind of like this social work stuff and I can help people Uh, in a different way. I can help them deal with problems. I can help them deal with their mental health. I can help people, uh, you know, with domestic violence, addiction, that sort of a thing. And, uh, and then I don't have to worry about the the medical side of it. And so fell in love with it, decided to stick with it. And after I got my uh, bachelor's degree, I decided to go on and get my master's. So afterwards, did you just graduate and then go right into becoming your own, uh, clinical social worker? I did. So I went on to graduate school and launched my career as a therapist. And I thought, this is great. I'm going to help other people deal with mental strength. And, you know, based on everything I've learned in in my textbooks and all this information I got in college, I'm now going to impart on these people that walk into my office. And, you know, as a 22 year old, I was terrified yet thought uh, they they gave me this degree. So I must have everything I need to, to help people. But uh, about a year into my work as a therapist, my mom passed away, and it was sudden and unexpected. She had a brain aneurysm, and it occurred to me that you know, okay, now how do you how do you go through pain? How do you deal with grief? And I, I'd seen people, you know, in my first year of therapy, who uh, some of them were stuck. They'd gone through something difficult, maybe five years ago, maybe twenty years ago. And they felt like they they were just stuck and that they never really uh, got over it or they never worked through it. But I saw other people that went through really tough times and they seemed to come back and they were even more resilient because of what they went through. And so I started studying people in my office basically for my own sake. I wanted to know, how do you go through really tough times and feel like you grow from it rather than be reduced by it? And early on, I realized it wasn't always about what the people in my therapy office did. Sometimes it was more about what they didn't do, that people who didn't have certain bad habits seemed to to get better faster. They seemed to be able to bounce back. They were still optimistic about life. And, and so I paid really close attention to, to what not to do. 
And then on the three-year anniversary of the day that my mother passed away, my 26-year-old husband died of a heart attack. And to find myself a 26-year-old widow and I didn't have my mom, it was incredibly painful and just such a dark and surreal experience. Uh, I didn't know anybody who was widowed who was, you know, under the age of 75, really. And I, you know, I just, I couldn't imagine still trying to work as a therapist and help other people with their problems when my heart was broken. And uh, it was a, a long time of healing for me. It took years for me to finally feel like I was back on my feet and creating this new sense of normal for myself. But fortunately, I learned a lot in therapy from from the people who came into my office about what not to do. And so I avoided bad habits as much as I could, like not feeling sorry for myself. And about four years after my husband passed away, I was fortunate to find love again. I got remarried and life was starting to look pretty good. But within the first year of being married, my father-in-law got diagnosed with terminal cancer. And I just remember thinking, this isn't fair. How could I lose another loved one? I don't want to go through this again. I feel like I've been grieving for 10 years already. I just can't go through this. And as I was sort of in the midst of my own pity party, I was reminded that that way of thinking would drain my mental strength. And so I sat down and I wrote a list of all the things that mentally strong people don't do. The things that I'd learned through my own journey, but also the things I'd learned in my therapy office. And when I was done, I had 13 things. And I I had learned these things over the years, but I'd never written them all down. And seeing it on paper was really helpful. And so I kept that letter to myself and I would just keep reading it over and over. And I thought, all right, as long as no matter how much pain I'm in or what I'm going through, as long as I don't do these things, I'll be okay. And so a few days later, I thought, you know, if this list is helpful to me, maybe it would help somebody else. So I published it online. And by that point in my career, I was doing a little bit of freelance writing uh, on outside of work. I had done it as a way just to earn some extra money when I was widowed. And so I had a few places where I could publish it. So I put it online, sort of stepped away from my computer hoping it might resonate with a couple of people, but I never imagined that it would go viral. But within a day, it was read by several million people. And then Forbes magazine picked it up and it got 10 million more views. And before I knew it, it had 50 million views. And my phone was ringing off the hook from uh, Fox News and CNN in Mexico and MTV in Finland and all of these places from around the world asking me, how do you know these things about mental strength? And nobody knew the backstory. I didn't tell it. It was basically the list is all that I had published. I didn't explain the story behind why I wrote it. And so everybody thought, wow, you wrote this list because you've mastered it. But nobody knew that I also struggled with it. And I was fortunate that during that time, a literary, literary agent called and she said, you should write a book. And it was nothing that was even on my radar. I didn't even know what a literary agent was at that point. But I thought, okay. And so she kind of fell by the wayside because I was getting calls from so many people during this time frame. But uh, luckily, she called back and followed up with me. And it just so happened I was going to New York for some other interviews. And so I met her in person and sat down with her and went to her office and realized, wow, she's represented people who've written some really uh, good books out there. And so even with her, I didn't tell her until about the second or third time I talked to her. I said, well, I have a story, but I don't know that I want to tell my story. I'm a therapist and I'm used to listening to people's stories, not sharing my own. And she said, well, you don't have to share it, but it might give you some more credibility if you do. And so I decided to, and we, uh, within uh, a few weeks of meeting her, I created a book proposal. And within a month, I had a publishing deal with HarperCollins, one of the biggest publishers in the world, and a due date to finish the book within the next year. And so uh, that's how I 
always tell people I became an accidental author. I never imagined that this would happen, but I'm definitely happy that it that it did. And it's been an incredible journey. And then that's not even the end of it, right? Because even then that sounds like, okay, success, but then it kept going. You got uh, a very popular TEDx talk. Uh, you started going around the world speaking and then it's blossomed into more books, right? Absolutely. So I guess the year after my book came out, well, when my book first came out, it it did okay, but it didn't do as well as everybody had hoped since it, the article had been so popular. My publisher had big hopes for the book and it was not an instant bestseller. So it was a bit disappointing. And uh, so I thought, all right, that's okay. You know, I'm a therapist and I got to write a book and how how fortunate am I? And then I gave a TED Talk the following year, and the TED Talk has almost 10 million views now. And I just kept, you know, writing as many articles as I could. And I thought, you know, I'm just, I'm going to start writing more about mental strength and speaking more about mental strength. And the doors just kept opening. The more I talked about it, the more opportunities came my way. And so about a year after the book came out, it hit the bestseller list. It was on the Wall Street Journal bestseller list in USA Today. And all of these other uh, countries kept calling and asking if they could translate it. And so it's in 30, my first book is in 36 languages now. And and then I just kept getting questions from parents asking, well, how do we teach kids to be mentally strong? So that led to my second book, 13 Things Mentally Strong Parents Don't Do. And then as we were talking about the parenting book, I got a lot of questions from moms who, who were asking, well, what does it look like to be a mentally strong woman? Because when we talk about mental strength, so often we talk about elite athletes or Navy SEALs who just happen to be men. And so I thought, you know, why don't, why don't we talk about a women's book? And I had a lot of questions from dads as well. How do we raise strong daughters? And what does it look like to be a mentally strong girl? And so I thought, this is a great idea. So 13 Things Mentally Strong Women Don't Do came out the following year. And so it's definitely been an incredible journey. And now I do get lots of opportunities, writing opportunities and speaking opportunities. And my other two books are each in 10 languages. So I guess as of right now, there's something like 56 books out there uh, with my name on it talking about mental strength that are published all around the world. Yeah, I think when I first got in contact with you or uh, it was kind of early on and I thought, okay, just being a viral sensation, that's that's it. You're done. <laughs> I keep following you. Okay, you got a book. Okay, cool. End of story. You're done. Look at the success story. And then it kept going and going. And uh, like you said, it wasn't an instant hit, but there was this momentum that just wouldn't end. And it just was like the little train that could it kept going and going and going. Yeah. And I have been so honored, you know, that word of mouth has been the biggest uh, way that people hear about my book is somebody will tell them about it. And that's, of course, as an author, that's one of the biggest compliments or people will say, I bought three more copies of your book and gave it to people because I thought that it was really helpful and I thought it could help them too. And, you know, we didn't have a, a big moment where the book, you know, hit the bestseller list because we were on the Today Show or anything like that. Instead, it's just been this uh, like a snowball rolling down a hill that just keeps getting bigger and bigger and building more and more momentum because our readers are talking about it. And I'm so honored by that. You know, when we first started communicating online, I think it was because I had my own blog and I had shared your list and you were gracious enough to, you know, not yell at me by saying, hey, why are you sharing my list? And <laughs> just was very, you know, uh, charitable. And then we began talking and this isn't just like a front. You really are a very, very nice and kind person. Because as we were talking, I kind of shared our own overlaps where I had just lost my mom. And then not long before, I had just lost my dad. So it was two people in a row. And then kind of very similar to you, after I got married, my father-in-law died. So 
during that time, you know, your communications with me, and then you even sent me the book because you thought, you know, maybe this is something that could help me. So it did. I was reading it. I remember uh, at the hospital when my mom was in hospice. Not everybody went through the same thing I did or you did, but I represent a type of person who very much benefited from that book and wanted to tell others about it, but also the genuineness of your book and you. And I think that also came across, even though when you initially came out with the list, there was no context to it as far as what your backstory was, especially after your book, getting the full texture of it and where you came from. I think it's just a story that we just wanted to tell other people about because you lived through it. Yeah. Well, thank you for all of that. Um, yes, I definitely. And, you know, as a therapist, again, a lot of the skills and stuff that I was teaching other people, I, I knew inherently, but then knowing it and doing it is two different things. And as a therapist, I was really taught to to build on people's strengths. Well, you should point out what people are doing well and tell them to keep doing that. And But, you know, at some point early on in my career, I thought, well, if I wanted to go see a, a physical fitness trainer and they told me to run on the treadmill and they said, keep exercising, that'd be great. But I'd be really irritated if they didn't tell me quit eating so much junk food because, you know, if I eat a dozen donuts on the drive home every day, all that work on the treadmill wasn't going to be that effective. And I thought, you know, when it comes to mental strength, it's quite similar. And I recognized it in my own life that we're, we're all about being really busy and having all these things to do in our lives, but we never really talk about how do you make those things effective. And if you have just a couple of bad habits when you're going through life, I think all of the good habits sort of become counterproductive and you can't make any progress. And when it comes to mental strength, I think there's a big misconception. People think that being strong is about not feeling anything or that you shouldn't have any kind of pain or you should push through anything no matter how hard it is. But, you know, the truth is when it comes to mental strength, it's, it's not just about numbing or escaping your pain. Sometimes it's about facing it head on and dealing with it and knowing that having the confidence to know I can feel sad, I can tolerate anxiety and and I'm going to go through it because our tendency so often is to just go around because we don't want to deal with it. I don't know if a lot of therapists are willing to do this, which is that you are learning from your patients. I think when therapists do learn from their patients, they're learning things like bad habits or things they're doing wrong, but you are also learning from their strengths. Absolutely. And I think that was one of the unique things. I felt like I was, you know, I got to study people and, you know, I, I always feel so honored to be a therapist and people come into my office and and disclose, you know, things that they've never told anybody before. They tell me their deepest, darkest secrets. We talk about their biggest fears that some of them have never even admitted to themselves until they sit down and talk about it. And what an honor to have that job. And I also just felt like I got to learn about people on such a different level. We don't, you know, in, in our everyday interactions with humans, we don't sit around and talk about these things. But I had the privilege to do that and to give people a safe space and to allow them to talk about the really hard things and to be vulnerable and to to share, you know, gosh, I messed up or here's this thing that, that happened to me when I was a kid and how it still affects me. And, and it just taught me so much. And, you know, one of the biggest things I learned was we all have these shared experiences of pain and yet we rarely talk about them. We put, put up so many walls and we try to appear like we're, like we're cool or we try to make it look like our lives are happy on Instagram. And, and yet, Almost everybody, you know, has has some sort of hidden pain on the inside and, and we don't talk about it. And because we don't talk about it, we don't teach people how do you deal with that pain in a healthy way. A lot of us put so much energy into masking it or to covering it up or to pretending it doesn't exist. And it really takes mental strength to say, how do you how do you face these things head on? How do you talk about them? How do you ask for help? 
Because again, I think there's this misconception that acting tough is the same as being mentally strong, but it's not. That asking for help or admitting your weaknesses, those things take strength. And it's not just about saying, no, nothing bothers me because that's about acting tough, but it can be about acknowledging, yeah, I have these problems and I'm going through this stuff and, and I need help with it. There's something you said earlier in our interview, which is stuck. You said people get stuck. And it sounds like what you're talking about right now with mental strength and how we pretend, these are ways we get stuck. So what do you mean by getting stuck? So sometimes we'll go through something that's painful. And again, we'll, we'll do all we can to avoid feeling the pain. So we numb it where we just constantly start to suppress it or distract ourselves. And whether that means that we, we eat too much just to sort of numb our pain or we drink too much or we use drugs or we just uh, work as many hours as we can to avoid feeling uncomfortable. And then you can't make your life any better. Sometimes you have to like lean into the pain. Sometimes you have to acknowledge your discomfort. Sometimes you have to to go through it rather than try to go around it. And, you know, I'd see so many people who who just felt like they were stuck and, and they weren't really living. They were sort of going through the motions. They were getting through through the day, but they didn't feel like they were living a, a full and productive and healthy life or they didn't feel fully alive because it was more about, you know, just white knuckling it through life and trying not to feel bad. And when we do that, we sort of numb ourselves to the good stuff, too. And it's, you have to feel bad sometimes to appreciate feeling good. And we just don't talk enough about how do you feel bad? How do you allow yourself to, to go through hard times without, without getting stuck there? And sometimes it's about just acknowledging, okay, it's okay to be sad. And you don't want to stay stuck in sadness for 20 years. But when you feel sad, how do you heal? How do you, how do you allow yourself to feel sad in a way that's healthy? And then how do you move on from that so that, so that you aren't still feeling, okay, now I'm guilty because I don't feel better. I should feel happier. And, uh, you know, so many people who would come into my therapy office would would get stuck. Something painful would happen and then they just felt like, I don't deserve to be happy or because I, I made this one mistake in life, it means I'm a bad person, not just that I did a bad thing. And we have all these beliefs and self-limiting beliefs that aren't even true half the time, but we hold on to them and we do these things that are self-destructive or we get caught in this cycle of self-sabotage and just never really allow ourselves to move forward. And one of the best ways to do that sometimes is to just let yourself go through the pain and know, okay, if I to can tolerate this, if I can get through it, then there's healing and then I can feel much better on the other side. What I've noticed from a lot of athletes is that they actually call their therapists mind coaches. Do you think it's limiting how certain people will see seeking out help as a weakness? So instead, they have to either call it something else or like you said, avoid it altogether and just white knuckle through it. Yeah, I think it's a, you know, there's this huge thing in our society about seeing a therapist that so many people are embarrassed by it or somehow that it's a weakness or, you know, we don't, we don't do that or I don't need to talk to somebody. And, you know, and then when you think about it, like, you know, you see a dentist for your teeth, you see a doctor for your body. Why wouldn't you see somebody for your mind? And, uh, you know, no matter what you call it, whether you call it a life coach or, you know, and you, and you go see a, a professional or you decide, okay, I'm going to have some sort of a mind coach or a sports psychologist, uh, you know, talking to somebody about how you think or the behaviors that you choose, I think all of us could benefit from it. And I'm, I think we're making progress in that area. That it's not just about going to see somebody when you're when you're feeling really sick or when you're so depressed you can't get out of your own way, but that we're starting to see it more that people are doing it as preventative measures or uh, that people are willing to talk and talk more openly about having a therapist. And 
you know, my dream someday would be that we have mental health checkups, just like you go see a doctor to have your, your annual physical, that you could have a mental health checkup that just says, hey, how are you doing? Because sometimes we don't recognize how stressed out we are, or we don't recognize that our anxiety is has blown up because it's been so gradual that uh, we just become used to it. And I think it would be wonderful if we just incorporated more of that into uh, into our healthcare system, that you it's fine to go talk to somebody and that you don't have to wait until you um, are are not able to function. If you could go see somebody for preventative measures, I think we would uh, do a lot better if we if we treated mental health the same way that we do physical health. So why wouldn't you seek a specialist in order to strengthen that area if you know that's a weakness? Absolutely. I mean, we know your body won't do what your mind doesn't tell it. And we all deal with things, you know, self-doubt and the way that you think about something and, and study after study shows it directly affects how you perform. And if you are thinking, gosh, I, I'm not going to win this or I hope I don't embarrass myself, that's much different than walking in feeling appropriately confident and knowing how you're going to react when you when you get anxious or when you make a mistake. How do you bounce back from that? Uh, I think it's quite fascinating. And in, in athletes, I mean, we get to see it in real time. If you watch a, a baseball player who strikes out, what happens the next time they get up to bat? Are they then able to recover from that? Or if they make an error on the field, do they then make another error? It's kind of contagious sometimes. You see, you know, an uh, entire inning go downhill because one player makes a mistake and then morale is down and suddenly everybody's thinking differently. But so we see that on the sports field, but it happens in our real life, whether it's in the our communications with other people and how we interact with them or whether it's with a, our office job or uh, you know how you do everything I mean you're working out at the gym how are you thinking uh, you know your mind is often going to tell you to give up way before you need to give up your brain will t tell you all sorts of things that aren't true I mean it's estimated we have like 60 to 70 thousand thoughts a day most of those thoughts aren't accurate and learning how do you discern okay is my brain telling me the truth is my brain underestimating me when do I need to listen to my brain and, and when can I just prove that my brain is wrong? And uh, I think that's a skill we should start teaching kids at a young age too. So to go to your list of things, why it stuck out for me was that rather than just rules, it's more like 13 observations. Rather than telling people what to do, it's more like telling people this is what people already do. Something people can use to model themselves after rather than being told you have to do this. Do you think that's part of the appeal? Yeah, I think definitely the fact that I wrote a list about what not to do intrigued a lot of people because I think it was one of the first, if not the first list that came out about uh, what certain kind of people don't do. Of course, it's been replicated a million times now with what successful people don't do and what happy people don't do. But I think the don't do was uh, intriguing to people. And I think that... Uh, yeah, the fact that it wasn't, uh, hey, you have to add 101 more things to your already to do busy to-do list. Instead, just cut cut these things out of your life because all of us can say, well, what's, what's something I don't want to do today? What's something I can just eliminate from my life? So I think it's uh, a lot less daunting for people to say, how do I just cut these certain things out of my life rather than thinking I have to add all, all sorts of other things to my already busy to-do list. And is that something you do as a therapist also is to talk to people about, you know, maybe instead of doing more things to take some stuff off of your plate or hear some suggestions to think about? Yeah, I see so many. I mean, anxiety is huge, obviously, right now that uh, sometimes people will say to me, is depression the biggest problem you see? No, by far, it's anxiety. And a lot of that has to do with the lifestyle that we live, right? I and mean, we're checking our smartphones every 30 seconds. We're... <laughs> 
um, connected to to people constantly, but not necessarily in a healthy way. We're communicating over text message and social media, and that's replaced face to face contact. And you know, we're on all the time. I mean, it used to be you could just go home, and after seven p.m., you know, the phone didn't really ring, or you didn't necessarily have to worry so much about uh, you know emails on Saturdays and that kind of stuff. And I think so many people now feel like they're on twenty four seven. And their anxiety is sky high and they want me to fix their anxiety, but they don't necessarily want to fix their lifestyle. And sometimes it's about just cutting things out of your life that would make you live a healthier life. How do you set healthier boundaries? How do you cut certain things out so that your lifestyle is a healthy one and then your anxiety goes down? So with some of these 13 observations, some of them are intuitive and it's like a good reminder, but some are not so intuitive, like not giving your power away. What do you mean by that? Yeah, I'm glad you brought that one up because out of all of the 13 things, that's the one that people want to discuss the most. And no matter what kind of an audience I'm speaking to, I'll have people come up to me afterward and always offer me examples of this one. So I love to hear it. Uh, So not giving your power away is about saying, well, I'm in control of how I think, feel, and behave, and that other people don't have that power over me. Because so often we'll think, well, so-and-so makes me feel bad about myself. Or even when we say something like, my boss makes me work late, we give other people power over us. And because the truth is you don't have to do much in life. There aren't a lot of things that you absolutely have to do. And just changing your language and saying, well, I'm choosing to do this. And if you take work, for example, it's a choice to go, go to work every day. Your boss doesn't force you to show up. Your boss doesn't force you to work overtime. And yes, there's consequences if you don't go to work and there's consequences if you tell your boss you're going to go home at 5 p.m. no matter what. But just recognizing that that the choice is yours, that you're in control of how you spend your time, who you spend it with and what kind of life you want to create. And for some people, that's scary because they're so used to blaming everyone else for their life and saying, you know, it's not my fault. But for some people, it's really empowering to say, yeah, I can live whatever kind of life I want. I get to choose how to spend my time. I get to choose whether I want to spend it with with people who make me feel bad, that I blame for making me feel bad, or if I want to spend the time with people who, who lift me up, or if I want a, a job that I love, or if I'm going to continue in a job I don't love. And just recognizing that sometimes can be huge and saying, you know, I, I have the strength to create any kind of life I want and and the power to put myself out there and actually go live that life. Why is it so normal for us to give our power away? Because I think that's why people want to discuss it, because we just do it as part of normal practice. Yeah, I think it's just sort of become a habit sometimes, right? It's easier to say other people drag me down rather than acknowledge, well, some of the choices I make contribute to this. And, you know, it's sometimes we get this sort of um, temporary pleasure from complaining, commiserating with other people. And when you realize, well, things I'm complaining about are things that I do have some control over, or there are things I could get out there and do about it, or I could just sit here and waste time complaining to somebody uh, who doesn't have the power to change it. Uh, You know, again, we get some temporary pleasure out of sitting there and complaining and every study will show in the long term, it makes us feel worse and makes our lives worse. But sometimes we look for the the quickest fix that we can, something that makes us feel better in the moment rather than really thinking about the long term. It takes energy. It takes uh, takes a leap of faith sometimes to to change your life or to acknowledge, okay, I have power over this. I can I can change my life if I want. It's just easier to to blame other people and convince ourselves that it's not our fault. So it's that human bias to think of the short term rather than the long term. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think sometimes we get short-sighted and we're looking for just instant relief, something that's going to make me feel better right now, rather than thinking, okay, if I go through this right now, even though this is hard, this is going to help me next week, next month, next year. Actually, this leads me to my next thing, which is not wasting energy on things you can't control. Can you expand on that? Sure. When you really think about, okay, what do I have control over in life? It's not a lot of stuff. You know, you can control uh, the time you wake up in the morning. You can control what you put in your body, how much exercise you get. You can't control other people. You can't control how they behave, how they interact with you. You can't control the weather. You can't control uh, you know, government, financial, the economy. Uh, you know, and so when you really stop worrying about all the things you can't control and you say, okay, well, what am I going to focus on? It's a lot smaller. For some people, that's scary, too, because it's much easier to complain about the government, to complain about, you know, something at work isn't fair or to talk all about, you know, how you wish somebody else would act differently. Um, but when you, you know, you only have so much mental energy, you only have so much time, you just want to put it into the stuff that you have control over. And, and that's how you change your life. You don't change your life by wishing things were different or hoping that other people finally come around to seeing, seeing life the way that you see it. Instead, just put your energy into becoming the best person you can and saying, well, what do I have control over? Again, how I spend my time, who I spend it with, what I put into my body, how much exercise I get, uh, what kind of life I'm going to live. Because uh, that's where you're going to get the most return on your investment. How are you able to determine the difference between being critical and self-deprecating? Is there a line that you should be aware of not to cross? Or is it a constant fine-tuning process? I, you know, I think it's about when you are having, when you start paying attention to your inner dialogue and thinking, would I say this to a trusted friend? Because hopefully if you had a really good friend who came to you with a problem, it should be honest sometimes and say, you know, this is what I've noticed. Let's say you have a friend who's constantly worried about money, but yet you see them online shopping every day and buying all sorts of stuff and stuff that they don't need. Maybe you'd have that conversation that says, you know, this is what I see. Um, you want some help getting out of this debt? Whatever it is. Um, but so often when we see problems in our own lives, we tend to think, oh, I'm such an idiot. I, I shouldn't do this or I, I can't possibly do any better. I'm bad with money and this is never going to get any better. We call ourselves names. We put ourselves down. And sometimes people think, well, this is tough love. When I, when I talk to myself like this, then I'll motivate myself to do better. But that's not true. Every study shows when you talk to yourself in an overly harsh manner, you feel worse about yourself. And the worse you feel, the, the worse you perform and the worse you perform, then the it's a vicious cycle. Then you start thinking more negatively. So you just want to ask yourself, would I say this to a trusted friend? How would I talk to that person? And to use more self-compassion and, and to know that rather than blame yourself, rather than thinking I'm a bad person, maybe you think I did a bad thing. Or I, you know, when you call yourself names, the stories that you've told yourself, I'm a loser. People don't like me. I'm socially awkward. Uh, whatever it is, those sorts of messages that you keep bombarding yourself with, they'll become a self-fulfilling prophecy. You'll behave in a way that makes those things true. And when you start changing the script in your head and realizing, okay, I don't need to remind myself of this 15 times a day. I can actually challenge these beliefs. I can get out there and do something different. You can live a much bigger, bolder, and happier life. But you really just have to pay attention that it's okay to call yourself out and say, you know, you did mess up today, or you have this uh, issue, or maybe you aren't the best at math. That's okay. But you don't need to, to make fun of yourself. You don't need to put yourself down. You don't need to compare yourself to other people. And when you just recognize that, if you wouldn't say it to a loved one, don't say it to yourself. With the observation about control and what is within your control and what's not, 
I think it's confusing for people because if I were to call your book a self-help book, let's say, so much of self-help and inspirational thinking is that everything is within your control, that you're the master of your universe. You just don't know it. But that's not realistic. And for many people, that advice has just made them unhappier and feel like bigger failures, to your point, anxiety. So how do you determine what is within your control and what is not? That's I'm glad you asked that question. So yes, when we look at when it comes to what we call locus of control, sometimes people have an external locus of control. Those are the people that think, well, it's up to fate. If it's meant to be, it will be. And they really don't put that much effort into making their lives all that good because they think it was already predetermined or that it's chance or everything is about luck. On the other end of the spectrum, you have people who have a complete internal locus of control. They think success is 100% up to me no matter what. And they don't factor into the equation that maybe you get sick. Maybe you just missed out on an opportunity because you weren't in the right place at the right time and your friend was. So that's why they got something that you didn't. Uh, and, you know, research will show that people who have an extreme internal locus of control, they think that they can control everything. They often come up with a big plan for their life. And they think, okay, I have to follow this plan at all cost. And because they're so rigid about making sure that they meet their goals and they think, you know, again, success is 100% up to me and they become perfectionists and they uh, can be easily become workaholics, that they aren't, they don't have their head up looking around. So even when an opportunity comes their way, they miss it because sometimes the things that do come our way, the opportunities are unexpected. It's at a dinner party or it's, uh, you know, you just happen to be filling out some paperwork or you're surfing the internet and you come across something else that grabs your attention and you think, oh, I'm going to try this. And some unexpected ways, but people who tend to think, you know, success is always 100% within my control. They don't do those things because they think, you know, that's not in line with what I'm trying to accomplish. Consequently, they miss out. So we know that people who tend to have the happiest, healthiest lives land in the middle. They have a bilocus of control that they're able to say, okay, success is a lot of it's up to me, but it's not a hundred percent up to me. You can't control whether somebody promotes you. You can't control whether the economy uh, tanks. You can't control, you know, whether a store buys your product. It's 101 things that that you can't control. So then you just have to say, well, what, what, what is it that I can do? Well, I can control my effort. I can control my attitude. So I think sometimes it's just about asking yourself that question. How much how much do weight do I put into uh, success? And how much do I think success is completely up to me? And how much room do I leave to know that, yeah, sometimes there are factors outside of my control. Um, you know, if somebody else invents a product that makes yours obsolete and it just happens to come out the week before you, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're a failure. It just means, gosh, you know, the timing was off. And so just knowing how, how much, uh, how much are you able to, to evaluate those sorts of factors can help you figure that out. And again, if you can acknowledge, yep, there's some external factors, but also here's some internal factors. Here's some things I can do and, and land somewhere in the middle of that continuum. You're much more likely to, to be successful in the end. Now, when I was reading this book while my mom was in hospice, one of the most powerful things was you said, and you repeated it here, but I'll highlight it, which is that if nothing else, when everything is out of control, you can still control your attitude. And that was very powerful for me because not in the typical way where it's like, okay, I'm controlling my attitude. I can choose to be happy or not happy because that can be difficult. And then if I'm not happy, then it's my fault. I didn't take it in that way. It was more like, I'm not completely powerless, even if it is difficult, even if I can't seemingly control my attitude, 
that is still something that is within my control. And just the idea that knowing something's in my control, that I'm not completely powerless here because everything else I have no power over. It kind of gives you that ray of light when you're in the darkness where you're like, okay, I got something to build off of. That's it exactly. I think we know no matter how bad life is, just look for something healthy that you can control. And, you know, there's, they did a study, in fact, on kids who uh, have terminal cancer, kids who are going through all sorts of cancer treatments. They have very little that's in their control. You know, their parents, their doctors, they get subjected to all of these tests, all of these horrible treatments. They're painful. Their kids are sick all the time. And most of them feel like I, there's nothing I can control about my life. Well, they figured out that if they worked with kids on breathing techniques that help them tolerate pain, that help them feel calmer when they had to undergo treatments or when they had doctor's appointments coming up, the kids' moods were much better. They felt like the treatments weren't as painful. I mean, what a simple thing. Just control your breathing. They just gave them very simple breathing strategies. And so you think, well, you know, if kids who are undergoing cancer treatments can come up with something that they can control, I'm sure we can all find something in our life. So that even when it feels like you're in the midst of a crisis and life is is horrible and painful right now, sometimes all you can control is saying, you know, I'm going to control my body. How do I breathe differently? Uh, how do I, you know, can I take 10 minutes to just meditate? Can I figure out what am I going to think about today? Um and, you know, we, we can tolerate a lot more once you feel like that. It's when we feel completely powerless and helpless and hopeless that, that we tend to get stuck in thinking, you know, nothing's my fault. I have no control over anything in my life. Now, with not pleasing everyone, I think we grow up thinking that's a hard and fast rule, that we should please people to get ahead in school, to get ahead at work, in life. Why is this not always a good idea and how can it detriment our psyche? You know, I see so many people come into my therapy office who were people pleasers to a fault. Whether, you know, I had a woman who came in and she she just couldn't understand why she wasn't getting promoted at her job. She said, I've done everything my boss has asked for 10 years. If he says jump, I say how high. I do everything anybody wants me to do around the office, and, and but yet everybody else gets promoted. And so I encouraged her to have this conversation with her boss to find out why she didn't get promoted. And she came back the next week and she said, you know, my boss sat me down, looked me in the eye and said, how could I promote you? You have no backbone. And she said, you know, for 10 years, I thought I was pleasing everyone at the office in a way that would make them like me enough so that I'd get promoted. I had no idea that I was showing them that I couldn't be assertive and that I couldn't be a leader. And, you know, I see this in so many other situations, too, where people think, if I just say yes to everything that anyone ever asks of me, then somehow I'll be liked or I'll be good enough. And it comes down to a self-worth issue. And it's so easy to lose sight of your values and to forget who you are and to, to lose track of what's really important in life when you put all of your energy into wanting to be liked and to, to wanting to be, you know, to come across as I'm not a selfish person and that I'm really giving and, and that I'll do anything for anyone, anytime. And it's a slippery slope because people who, who start down that track hoping that it will help them feel good, it's still never enough. You never feel like you can you can do enough or that you're ever good enough because you're just never going to find satisfaction from being liked enough by other people. Not dwelling on the past seems uh, like a particularly poignant one nowadays because nostalgia has made a huge comeback. Whether it's music, movies, or TV shows, it's all about reliving the past, reboots. And people can't seem to get enough of it. So why is this a bad idea? You know, like, it's okay to reflect on the past and to learn from it. But when people get stuck there is when it becomes a problem. And so I'd have people in my therapy office and, you know, 
they made a mistake 10 years ago and they thought, well, I don't deserve to, to now be happy or I can't forgive myself because that would mean that what I did was okay. And so they would just relive it constantly in their heads as a way to sort of punish themselves to feel bad about that something that they did. Or, you know, I had other people who were just determined that life was better back then, whether back then was when they were in high school and they were on the football team or whether it was when their kids still lived at home or when they, maybe before they had kids. And, you know, and they just romanticize it to the point that they can't enjoy life now because they've convinced themselves that that life was better then and that there's nothing that they can do to make it as good now. And, you know, for myself, I struggled with this one for a while because after my husband passed away, it was like my all of my memories of him lived in the past. And it just felt like if I if I allowed myself to live in the present or to look to the future, it was like almost being disloyal. And in the the grief and the fog that comes with grief, it causes all this distorted thinking. And, you know, on an intellectual level, I knew that these things happen, but also just experiencing them for myself taught me a lot just about, you know, how do I know when it's okay to, uh, to throw items of his clothing away or to give them away or to, to get rid of some of his stuff. And, you know, I didn't want my house to look like a museum to him over the years, but at the same time, it felt uncomfortable and disloyal to get rid of his items. And I had to go through this whole process of allowing myself to say, okay, you don't have to live in the past. It's okay to move his shoes. It's okay to get rid of his winter jacket. And um, to get to that point where I allowed myself to do that, it was painful and it took a, it was a process. Um, But I knew that it was an important place to get to. Otherwise I'd be stuck. And I had seen other people in my office who had lost someone. And because of that, they felt like, like they could just never move on, that they shouldn't be happy, that it would be wrong to to be happy in life again. And I saw what it did to them, and I didn't want that to happen to me. There's that idea again, being stuck. We're stuck in the past and not living in the present. Right. And, you know, and sometimes it's a matter of somebody just rehashing a conversation they had with somebody two days ago, <laughs> and they just can't let it go, or they just keep replaying, you know, something that happened last week that didn't go the way that they wanted. And, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be something from, you know, horribly tragic that happened 10 years ago. Sometimes it's just these little things that we do and, you know, where we start wishing things were different. I wish I would have, I would have said this, or if only I could have done that, then my life would be different. And, or if I, I could have, you know, intervened in that moment, then things wouldn't have gone this way. And, and we just really tell ourselves these stories of, you know, if I would have done something different, I'd be happier now. Or if I uh, you know, didn't have that conversation, or if I could have been quicker on my feet, I would have said something that would have made the conversation change and everything would be different now. And the stories that we tell ourselves, and they're usually um, quite ridiculous when you think of them, but we can convince ourselves that somehow we've messed up, life will never be good again. And then you just don't enjoy the present and you can't make your future as good as it could be. That's a lot of baggage to lug around. It is, isn't it? <laughs> so... My final one and my favorite observation is not fearing alone time. What does that mean and why is that important? Oh, I'm glad you asked about that one too. Because when I talk about this one, a lot of times people will say, no, I love alone time. And I'll say, well, what do you do when you're alone? And they'll say, well, I text my friends and I watch TV <laughs> and I'm, you know, and so th- this one to clarify, it's really about being alone with your thoughts. And uh, you know, I had so many people who come into my therapy office and they'd say, you know, I, I sleep with the TV on because I just my brain won't shut off. And they'll ask them, well, how much time do you spend just thinking during the day without any background noise, no radio, no you know, podcast and TV? And the answer is always, well, no, you know, I have to be productive. I don't have time to just sit around and think. 
But, you know, the truth is your brain needs an opportunity to, to think ah, without all of the social noise and distractions and things that we have going on. But for most people, it's really tough to do that. We don't want to carve out 10 minutes of our day to just sit and think because we feel like I have to be productive. I have things to do. I can't possibly unplug or it's almost a sense of panic if you were to shut your phone off for 10 minutes for no real reason. But, you know, it's so important. We spend so much time planning things like a vacation or you plan a wedding, but we never really sit and plan our lives. We don't really sit and think about the big picture. We don't imagine our goals or we don't think, gosh, how did I do today? And reflect back on it and think, what could I do better tomorrow? And so when it comes to alone time, you know, whether you decide I'm going to meditate for 10 minutes, I'm going to write in a journal, I'm going to practice gratitude, or I'm just going to sit and quietly and think for a few minutes without all the noise going on, whatever you decide that you're comfortable with is fine. But I feel like we should all just schedule 10 minutes a day to just do that and to invest it in ourselves and knowing that uh, we can tolerate silence and that you don't have to be surrounded by noise all the time. In fact, I share this in my TEDx talk, but they did a study where they asked people, would you rather sit quietly and meditate for 15 minutes or submit yourselves to an electric shock? And 25% of the women opted for the electric shock. And so then they asked the men the same question. And almost 75% of men opted for the electric shock <laughs> rather than sit quietly for 15 minutes. And I think that just speaks volumes about our culture today, that it's so hard for us to imagine that you can just sit in silence for 15 minutes. But I think it's so important to take care of our minds and our bodies that way and, and to just allow yourself to do that. And if you can't find 10 or 15 minutes a day to do that, then probably something's gone horribly wrong and you may want to reevaluate your schedule and your priorities. When you talk about mental strength, it's something everyone wants to get better at, but some might not know where to start. What would be a good way of developing habits or if you had to think of it in physical exercise terms, some training blocks that they could use to get stronger mentally? Yeah, I think you're right that a lot of people don't really know what it is to be mentally strong. And so there's three parts to it. It's about the way that you think, the way that you feel, and the way that you behave. And thinking, it's not about positive thinking, it's about realistic thinking. And uh, so it goes back to just paying more attention to the kinds of thoughts that you have. Do so you call yourself names or do you tend to build yourself up? That sort of a thing. When it comes to emotions, it's about saying, okay, how do, what kind of control do I have over how I feel? How do I respond to my emotions? It's not about numbing them or escaping them. So being more aware of your emotions and how they affect your decisions. And then the behavior part is, what do you choose to do on a daily basis? How do you spend your time? How do you treat other people? How do you uh, set goals? And how do you reach your goals? How do you interact? Uh, so there are lots of exercises you can do. My personal favorite is to say, practice gratitude. There's a million studies out there that tie gratitude to everything from being happier and healthier and grateful people live longer. They have better relationships. I mean, the list goes on and on. I think it's a superpower that's often underappreciated. Um, in fact, you'll even sleep better if you write in a gratitude journal before bed. So I think it's really simple. If you just identified three things that you're grateful for every day, you can help build mental muscle. It changes the way that you think. It changes the way you see the world. It changes the way that you interact with people. It uh, changes the way you feel when you're experiencing gratitude. It's impossible to, to feel sorry for yourself, and it's impossible to focus on all the things you don't have. So that's one really simple way to, to start building mental strength is say, I'm going to practice gratitude. Uh, another quick exercise is just practice labeling your emotions throughout the day. Sometimes when I give talks to groups, I'll have um, all the adults in the room just write down, I'll say, I'll give you 30 seconds, write down as many feeling words as you can. 
And at the end of 30 seconds, I'll say, who feels really good about their list? And nobody ever raises their hand. We're always surprised at how few feeling words we know. Happy, sad, mad, scared. You know, people come up with about six or seven. And we talk so much about emotional intelligence, yet, I mean, I think we're really not even there. We've got a ways to go. But just putting a label on your emotions during the day, do I feel anxious? Do I feel disappointed? Am I scared? Am I happy right now? And it takes a lot of the sting out of it when you just put a label on it, like, oh, okay, I'm feeling really anxious right now as I walk into this meeting, or I'm feeling uh, really nervous as I have to make this phone call. Whatever it is, just acknowledge it sometimes. And then pay attention to how that affects your behavior. When we're anxious, we want to avoid anything that's going to make us anxious. So we make some crazy decisions sometimes because we're like, oh, that's too anxiety provoking. I don't want to do that. Or sometimes when we're sad, and studies will show we do crazy things when we're sad too to compensate. So if you're negotiating a deal when you're sad, you'll take a really low offer because you think, I don't want to be rejected because I already feel sad and I can't handle feeling feeling even more sad. So just acknowledging, here's, here's how I feel. Here are my emotions. Here's the label that I'd put to it. And then noticing how it affects your behavior. Just another really simple way to build mental strength throughout the day. With the power of labeling, is it because when we don't label and we just let it sit there and we're just feeling something, but we don't know what it is. Is it the uncertainty that makes things worse? It is. So, you know, again, our emotions cloud our judgment that makes us do some crazy things sometimes. So just acknowledging. So there's another study that shows, let's say something happens at home uh, at night and you go to work the next day and whatever it is that happened at home is causing you to feel anxious. It spills over into your work life. So then when you go to work the next day, you'll play it safe. You won't do anything anxiety provoking because you think I can't tolerate any more anxiety. And so just acknowledging when you walk in the door at the office, oh, I feel really anxious about that thing that happened last night. That can just make you be more aware. That's going to affect how the choices I make today. So I might tend to play it safe all day long just because I'm feeling anxious. So how am I going to how am I going to handle that? And just as soon as you put the label on it, oh, feeling anxious, a little bit of the sting of it comes out a little bit. Otherwise, when we don't when we don't have a name for something, it's like we put all this mental energy into trying to either fix it, make it better, or do something about it. But when you just have the language to say, okay, this is anxiety and, I, and I'm okay, then somehow it just can help calm your body, calm your mind a little bit so that you feel like, okay, I can tolerate this. You know, Amy, we've covered a lot. And I think if we cover any more, our brains will literally explode. <laughs> so I think we should stop here. Thank you for your time. I'll put links to your books in the show notes. But otherwise, how can people find you? Uh, the best way is my website, which is Amy Morin, LCSW, is in licensed clinical social worker.com. All right. Thank you, Amy. Thanks for having me.